This is Changing Channels with Larry Walsh, the channelnomics podcast that connects you with channel chiefs, thought leaders, and executives about what it takes to get the next generation of tech to market. Here's your host, Larry Walsh, the CEO and Chief Analyst of Channelnomics. Hey, thanks everyone for joining us again. As they said, I am Larry Walsh, your host, and um, I've been looking forward to having this conversation, you know, particularly over the last couple of weeks while I was out there shorting game stock, stock um, <laughs> thinking about how do we, how do we put, uh, how do we get funding done? And I know that sometimes this sounds like an archaic topic, but I think it's a really important one, particularly for an industry that's built on innovation. I can tell you that over the past couple of decades, I've seen a number of really innovative technologies come and go because two things happen. One, they didn't get the route to market right, and they didn't figure out how they were going to sell and sell and market their product. And the other one is, is that they just couldn't get the funding and support that they needed. Now, one of my favorite books, somebody asked me recently, um, you know, what book would I recommend to people to read? And I told them uh, Skin in the Game, which is a fantastic book. Same guy who uh, Nicholas Tlaib, uh, I, I always forget his full name, but great book uh, you know, about you know making sure that if you're going to have these ventures that you that the people who are vested in it or should be vested in it actually have a reason to participate. And this is the reason why I still to have our guest Chad Cardenas, the CEO and founder of the Syndicate Group to join us because he has done both things. He has innovated and reinvented the way we're thinking about funding technology companies as well as providing channel partners a means of having skin in the game. So Chad, welcome to uh, Changing Channels. Thanks, Larry. I appreciate you having me. So why don't we just jump right into it? Because, you know, you're still fairly, TSG is short script for the syndicate group is still fairly young. Let's just start by telling us what, what it is and how does it work? Yeah, well, in your intro was uh, very kind. Thank you. And it summed up actually kind of the core of what we do, you know, putting skin in the game for basically all constituencies that, that we serve. So some folks refer to us as a venture operation. I like to think that we're more of a services business. So we provide a service to startups pre-IPO. So that could be an early stage company, you know, series A or B, or it could be all the way up to a series D or E round of funding prior to the company going public or getting acquired. And what we do is essentially we'll take an allocation alongside the major VCs in a particular round. And with that allocation, we run a specific process and program for the startup that identifies as many strategic channel partners, the companies and the individuals that work for those companies, uh, as many of those folks as possible. And then we give them an opportunity to come into our special purpose vehicle uh, as investors in that company, and then they help bring that company to market through their resale relationships. Yeah, what what got you to this point? Why why try to source funding from from channel partners as a means of creating a VC pool? Yeah, so my thinking on this started years ago when I was on the other side of the industry when I was helping to run a channel business, a company called Trace Three. And I saw some gaps in the market that I thought could be filled with the right model. Very specifically, startups have a hard time getting the attention of the right channel partners early on in their growth. Channel partners, I think, um, have a difficult time focusing 
on early stage startups because sometimes there's no brand name behind the company. Maybe it's a difficult selling motion or undefined selling motion, and maybe they're just not incentivized properly. And so I thought if we could create a financial vehicle through which the most strategic folks in a startup's ecosystem could participate in that value growth upside, then everybody would win because the, the, the goals and objectives would be aligned all the way through exit. You know, it, it sounds interesting. I mean, it, it really is. I find it fascinating to think that you're, it, there's a compelling reason for a partner, you know, whether it's an integrator or a reseller to, to want to participate in a vendor, not because they do have a vested interest, but there's still a hurdle. One of the things that partners, particularly companies like Trace3, which is a great organization that was built by you and your, you and your, your founding partners, um, that there's an important consideration when going to market with the vendor. It's customer consideration. That you know, does the customer know who you are? Do the you know know the vendor that you're that you're pitching? Do they appreciate the value? Do they have trust in it? And what they tell me more times than not is that it it's far easier. It's not that necessarily not to use you know any of the big brands, but we all know who they are. It's far easier to sell brand well known, even yes. if they're more expensive and they're not as good than it is to try to sell a better innovative brand that's new and unknown. So how do you, you know, how do you manage that between the two of getting them to invest and then commit to participation? Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. And I think you're right. It is more difficult to sell uh, a non-brand name product, but I, I, I don't think that's because that's not a technology issue or a problem and solution issue. It's just an awareness issue. And I think that's, that's changing very, very rapidly, uh, right before our eyes. If you look at the rate of change in technology, these is faster than it's ever been, and the the pace at which it's increasing is is blistering. And now you put yourself in the shoes of a of a Fortune 500 CXO, tech CXO. You can't keep up, and so you're relying on partners like Trace Three or these other forward thinking, um, you know, VARs integrators to sort through that noise on your behalf and make recommendations. And when there's a trusted relationship in place, it doesn't have to be a big brand name that somebody's presenting to you as a solution. It could just be, you know, here's the solution to your problem as I understand it. And here's why we think this could be a good fit for you. And then you're, you're off and running. Now the yeah. key, just add one more quick thing to that. The key there is the right partners. You know, you know, as well as anybody for every, super high value add partner. Um, there's, I don't know, any number of, of partners that don't add a lot of value and are just kind of in the middle. Um, so if you're connected to those right partners, then then you can get access to the right solutions. Yeah. And, I, you know, when we started the conversation, I referenced that book, uh, Skin in the Game. Yeah. And uh, it's Nassim Nicholas Tlaib. You know, I mean, this is, if anybody hasn't read this, you know, you really should. It's a, it's a great book. Um, cause like I said, the same guy who wrote black swan, um, who else, why don't we talk, you know, just talk about some of the companies you're, you're looking at or companies that you're actually have positions in, um, who are they and, and what made them attractive? Yeah, I'll give you a couple of current examples on kind of both ends stage spectrum for us. Just last week, we closed an investment with a company called Baltics. So it's a cloud native um, application and network security play. Pretty early stage, 
it's it was basically an A1 round. It's kind of in between an A and a B round of funding. So early, um, but very attractive because they're they're addressing a very um, common need in, in the industry. And they're partnering up with Cisco early on. So the reason that they did this in between round was a partnership with Cisco Investments, the VC arm of Cisco and Cisco proper, getting on their prices and everything. And so going, going very fast. A lot of enthusiasm um, in the channel around this company, Voltix, especially for it being such an early stage company. Normally, channel partners would be waiting for you know six months, a year from now until they prove themselves and then getting involved. Um, that's one example. Another would be a company most people are familiar with, at least in our industry, called ThoughtSpot, business intelligence platform for, for enterprises. So we're underway right now with them organizing an investment. And um, they're, I mean, it's kind of, you know, a classic Silicon Valley, you know, six story. It's, uh, they've been around, I think they were founded in 2013, 14. Um, and have been rapidly ever since. Seeing a big need, channel partners are very excited about what they're doing. And channel partners with ThoughtSpot, it's an opportunity to provide a very high-value business intelligence solution to them. Now, TSG isn't just about you know appealing to the partners to get into a funding because look, let's face it, there's a lot of people out there looking for money, uh, and there's, you know, but the funds aren't open to everyone, you know, so if you go to the, the, the VC houses up and down University Ave and then over in Menlo Park, it's not exactly, you know, there is a clubhouse effect to it, right? Um, but you also have, uh, let me describe it from what I, what I see is it's almost like a matchmaking. You're also allowing companies to come to you and with this model to you know, to actually apply to become one of the targets for your, for your investments. Is that, is that, am I interpreting that correctly? Yeah. So when, when, when I first launched this three, three and a half years ago, I, I've always said from the beginning, if we could be intensely focused on the value that we're providing to each kind of industry constituency and deliver real value every other way, then everything will just kind of fall into place, you know, within reason. And so you look at what we provide to the startups, it's really, it's a go-to-market service or a channel relationship and revenue acceleration program. Because to your point, the partners now have skin in the game, their mortgage. On the partner side, it's a way for them to get that much closer to a startup. It's a way for them to be incentivized in a massive, massive way. Because now, now they have a personal real investment, real dollars invested into this company. And so as they're bringing that in market, they can feel like they're, they're not only having an impact on the value growth of this business over time and helping it get to an IPO or, or an acquisition, but they get to share in the, the riches at the end of the, the road, just like the VCs and, and other insider investors. The other constituency that I refer to that, that a lot of folks I think overlook in terms of what we do is the traditional venture capital community. So we now have the top tier uh, venture firms bringing us in proactively to, to deals because they know even though they're taking a slightly smaller allocation in a particular you know coveted round of funding for a great company, they know that our small but strategic 
allocation of, of capital is going to put their much larger contribution on a faster path to a bigger exit. All right. So that's a really interesting point because it's one of the things that 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 I see often get overlooked is not just you know you're talking about a a hard cash folding folding money type of investment, but there's another value to this, which is the the after investment contributions of those the, those participants, and I see this often with vendors. You know, on one hand, the channel chiefs will go out on the stage and go online and say, you know, we love our partners, we appreciate them, we can't go to market without them. And then their CFOs and their CEOs go to the Wall go to Wall Street, and they talk about their sales, and mention nothing about their partners or their channels. And yeah. you know, analysts in between will ask questions about channels, but they're mostly you know, there's you know, it's still funny to hear the analysts talk about channel stuffing, right? Um, but do these companies in your constituents, you know, both the companies receiving support, the other VC funds that are participating alongside you? Do they see the value that these investors have in their in these in these startups? I would say, short answer, yes. Within the the kind of bubble that we operate, because um, if they didn't, I wouldn't have a business. Um, <laughs> but I'll expand on that a little. the 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 vision of the value that we provide exists on a spectrum, right? Just like just like individual enterprise tech companies commitment to the channel that exists on a spectrum you know some some of these companies they'll say we're a channel company but they're not really when when it comes down to it they're not like all in you know committed to the channel and then some are 100% channel they do everything that they say they're going to do and so and then there's everybody in between so yeah it's a uh, I, I think I wrote a blog a few weeks ago about this, about the, that commitment to the channel and getting value in return. And when you think about it, you know, why does any, why does any channel partner decide to form a relationship with, you know, a, a tech startup? You know, obviously you want to provide a solution to, you know, customers that have a particular need, but they're in the business of making money as well, right? So they look at margin programs, marketing development funds, SPIF programs, everything. This is kind of like the next level of all of that in terms of incentives for these partners, because, you know, they help the company become successful and they're successful with their investment. Yeah. It, look, the, the, when I first heard what you were doing, I was fascinated by it. Was, and the first time you and I talked about this, I was like, going, wow, this is, this is different. I haven't seen this anywhere before. And it is a new type of thinking, but new type of thinking isn't new for you. You are, you know, as, as I look across the span of your career, it has been one evolution of innovation or the quest for innovation after another, starting with your days as going back to NetApp and that transitioning into Trace 3. Talk to me a little bit about, or talk to all of us about, you know, what, what that innovation streak means what is it that you're looking for what do you think is lacking yeah it's interesting when i look at my time at netapp that was like the mid late 90s for about five or six years and i didn't have any kind of innovation responsibilities you know in my roles at netapp not like i, I worked in channels and sales and sales and channels leadership but I was surrounded by people by a culture that was built on on innovation i was surrounded by people like 
Dan Mormonhoven and Dave Hitz and James Lau and these guys that were just like, they were completely reimagining, you know, data management, and data storage. And guys like Dave Hitz, if you're familiar, well, you are familiar with him. We talked about his book. Um, yeah, oh, wait, let's, let's just talk about this right here, how to castrate a bull, which is, oh, I'll pull it back out for everyone to see it. It literally has a bull knife on the cover people. This is the most unassuming business book you'll ever read. And it's, yeah. it's a great read. Yeah, so it's amazing. And I think I have, I don't know if the camera can see it, but it's up on my bookshelf too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, guys like that, just being around people like that, I think got me, I didn't realize it at the time, but it got me kind of thinking in that mindset. I remember Dave Hitz once decided just out of nowhere, and I forget the reasoning behind it, he decided that he wanted to wear roller skates every day, all day. Like if he wasn't sleeping, he was wearing roller skates for like a month or longer. It might've been like, like several months. And I think, and literally like he'd get out of bed, he'd put on roller skates. And no matter if he's at the office at the doctor's office or whatever he was doing, he was wearing roller skates for his life for like a month or two or however long it was. And I think I remember maybe somebody could, could correct me on this, but I think I remember his thinking behind that just being, I wanna see what life is like through kind of a, a different lens, or if I do something different, what will that lead to, right? So it's kind of a wacky thing, but that's, that's like how guys like that kind of approach life and business. You know, that, that I'm, the only thing I'm gonna say is that showers must've been interesting. I mean, that's, that could've. Yeah, well, maybe maybe a shower's an exception, but I don't know. <laughs> so, so, then after NetApp, I go to Trace3, and in 2002, we start that business, and the, the, the primary goal of the business from day one was to change the perception of the channel industry, basically to make it better, make it more credible, and just kind of bring more, more value, more credibility and everything to the, the whole channel industry. And so that kicked off, for me, 15 years of, of trying to find ways of, of doing things better, finding new solutions, new ways of, of, you know, running a business in the channel. And, and that led, you know, one thing led to another. And then we got into, um, we got heavy into emerging tech, you know, that, that was, that was a pretty new thing at the time. It was like 2012, 2013. Um, we built an innovation team. We built a research team. We started taking CIOs up to the Valley to meet with VCs and like all this stuff. And then I started seeing the gaps from a financial perspective and an investment perspective. And I thought, you know, this, this could be applied at scale with massive value for a lot of people. Yeah. I, I want to touch on that because you did, there was a moment in the past, you know, around that time and you know, in 2016, where you saw that gap emerge, and you wrote a piece for, for TechCrunch, and if allow me, if I give me a people, let me read this. Um, investors, what you wrote, Chad, is investors need to understand that short-term thinking will always kill the potential for long-term gain when it comes to technology disruption. This is why so many incumbent technology providers are losing out to newer startups and the hottest tech companies in cloud, mobile, social, and big data analytics, et cetera, are constantly being faced with the prospect of being disrupted themselves. Now, you know, you listen to guys like Clayton Christensen who say you can't disrupt yourself and that is why M&A is the fuel of innovation for established companies. 
but I'm reading this and I'm hearing that, that it's not necessarily you can't disrupt yourself as much as you're choosing not to in favor of satisfying some other requirement. 100%. I, I was listening to another of your podcast with Bill Lipson, who I know, great guy, and, and asked him a, a question about the future of channels toward the end. And his answer was, was very interesting because he, you know, he basically said, you know, channels are not going away, but there will be partners and there are part channel companies that will not be around six months from now, a year from now or whatever. And so I completely reject the idea that you can't disrupt your own, you know, yourself or your own business. We did it several times at, at Trace3. Um, I feel like I've done it a number of times already, just in the three years that I've been running the syndicate group. And the channel, I mean, look no further than the channel industry. If you want to see companies that are either disrupting their own models and evolving accordingly or going by the wayside, there are, I mean, that that side of the industry is littered with examples on both sides. Yeah. Yeah. I and that's you know, I'll tell you that this is a thing that does frustrate me for what I do. And like, you know, I'm not a professional podcaster and, you know, many people tell me, will say that they can tell. Um, I spend, I spend my days working with technology companies around the world on finding better ways of engaging in, I'll say routes to market. Uh, because yeah. I don't differentiate between one channel and another is that you want to go direct and if direct is the right thing. Let's figure out how to get you direct. Right. Yeah. The thing that frustrates me is when a technology company will come and by definition, we think of technology companies as being innovative by definition. Right. Yeah. They'll come and they'll say, come give us something that no one has ever seen before. Give us something new. And then my team and I will go off, we'll brainstorm, we'll come back with a new model, a new way of approaching something, doing it different. And the first thing they'll say is, has anyone else done it? Yeah. And they'll reject it because it's, it, they don't want to be on the bleeding edge. And it's yeah. frustrating. It truly is frustrating to see. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. And I've had, I've had similar experiences just in, in kind of launching this business. You know, like I've, I've sat in, in, in conference rooms with founder CEOs of companies that, that want so desperately to, to build the channel and accelerate their channel relationships and revenue. And I'll lay out a, you know, a plan as it relates to our business in terms of this investment program. And, and this was early days of TSG. And I would lay it out and I'd explain, you know, in detail how it works and, you know, it's been proven out here and there. And, and I, sometimes I would still get kind of a, a blank stare, you know, back at me because they didn't maybe have, I, I couldn't give them examples, a very specific company that was right smack in their, you know, sector of the industry that was doing exactly the same thing. And so, I don't know, I think it, maybe it's just human nature, like a, a lot of folks especially when you're running a business, don't want to be the first or, or early. They just, they feel like there's too much inherent risk there. Yeah. You know, and I think that that's, um, I, I think the word, the correct word is risk. You know, and this is another thing I think is not just, and it's not exclusive to the tech industry. I see this in, in other industries as well. This aversion to risk to the point of not innovating. Yes. Um, that there's no one, I, and, and I don't fully understand it, that, that companies actually not say that they don't want to, you know, obviously nobody wants to fail, but they actively avoid failure. 
yeah. you know I mean, to the point of where they miss opportunities. And I, and I think that's something I, I do want to touch on with the TSG model is, as we said, channel partners are, you know, even some of the larger ones are still somewhat small businesses. Their owners are somewhat small. Even companies the size of Trace 3 is you, you built a sizable business, but still getting inside, you know, into the investment, into investment business, even as a side hustle does constitute risk. Yeah. So how do you manage those expectations? How do you how do you help the companies that you're investing in and your investors that are putting their money into it to understand the risk and manage their expectations? I give you two two thoughts on just kind of risk in general. In terms of innovating or disrupting within, one of the things that we tried in my last business, what we tried to do to get people to get ourselves and to get everybody else kind of on board with accepting some level of risk when it came to investing in a new program or going in a different direction or whatever it may be, or opening up a new region, you know, a new geographical region. We always tried to start with, you know, what's the risk? Not, let's not, let's not start with the risk of doing that different thing and failing. Let's start with the risk of not doing it. Like what are the risks if we don't do this? We don't do anything if we don't invest in innovation or build out this new team or this new region and we would game that out and you know i always knew where it was going because the the risks in my mind were always almost always greater when 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 we were thinking about not doing anything as opposed to being smart about developing a plan to do something right mm -hmm. so that's one thing i think beginning with assessing and quantifying the risk of not doing something then talking about the risk of doing something and failing like that's 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 very important in my mind and then from an investment perspective um i always tell people that invest through through our programs technology pre-ipo like startup investing is in general one of the most extremely risky investments you could ever make. When you look at just kind of all things you could do in terms of, you know, real estate and other uh, other kind of investment categories. And so I always give that disclaimer and that that warning that like, look, this is risky. Like it just is by nature. But the beauty of the model that we've put in place is it has dramatically mitigated risk for for everybody involved you know we're, we're not we're not a big billion dollar fund pumping tens of millions of dollars into hundreds of companies every year we're very very selective highly selective about the companies we may only in you know three or four or five or six uh, companies every year and the way we're able to vet those companies through the channel ecosystem and through the corporate IT buyer ecosystem and everything um, takes that risk down a ton. You know, you're, you're right about, you know, about there is actually a lot of risk in investing in technology. As we saw, you know, Jeff Bezos stepping down as CEO of Amazon. I, I really hope his life works out well for him. I'm worried, yeah. you know, yeah. he, he's, he, he's struggling. He's he struggling. is struggling. He, he may miss a meal. I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah. You know, you did mention something about, you know, mitigating the risk in, in the team. And I don't want to leave this conversation without acknowledging 
the cast of characters that you have around you. You know, you on your team, you have Mohit Aaron, the co-founder of Nutonix. You have uh, a, a man who's actually had a great influence on me and my channel experience, Leonard Ivintosh, you know, former channel chief of NetApp as well as several other companies. He was the first person who explained the long tail of the channel to me. Dan Warmanhover, the former CEO of NetApp, uh, Jeff Baywall, you know, the former president of the Americas for for uh, Avnet. I mean, this is a wealth of talent on your team. What do they bring to the table, and and how do they help both sides of your of your community? I mean, gosh, we could we could have a whole episode on just these guys and how amazing they are. Um, I'll I'll just give you a quick little bit on each of them, though. Um, and I'll tell you the common thread among all of them. And this may sound cliche, but they're good guys. They're just, they're good people, right? And they care, they care about the people around them and they care about people like me who are trying to do something different and make a difference and, and build something new. Um, you mentioned Leonard, uh, you know, he embodies all of that. Like Leonard, Leonard was the very first person outside of my, I guess outside of my two first uh, full-time employees that agreed, because you know Leonard, you know, he's done very well in his career. He doesn't need to be messing around with, with this stuff if he doesn't want to, but he wants to stay connected to really cool projects and he wants to stay somewhat connected to the industry. And he was the very first one that listened to my model and said, yeah, that's something special. I'd love to be a part of it. Tell me what you need. Dan Warmanhoven, very similar story. I, I've kept in touch with him over the years and he's done incredible for himself. Dan is a very unique individual in the sense that he knows how startups work. He knows how startups get funded. He knows how companies like NetApp can go, you know, through massive growth period and then, and then IPO. He's very well connected into the venture capital community. He sits on boards of companies like Cohesity with Mohit. And, and I asked Dan one day after he and I were starting to get involved together on, on my venture with TSG, I asked him just flat out, I said, Dan, like, what is it that keeps you going? Because he's a pretty guy and he doesn't need to be. Like, he's been so successful. And I said, what do you, like, what is it that, that keeps you excited about this industry and being involved like you are? And he did not hesitate with his answer, which was, I love mentoring young CEOs. And that was it. Like, yeah. That's all he said. He's, he's like, I just, that is the most fulfilling thing to me about still being involved in the industry. Mohit, again, just an incredible guy and super, super smart. I mean, you mentioned him being co-founder of that's where I first met him. And now he's the uh, co-founder of Cohesity, another just unbelievable story, yeah. what the company is doing. And Mohit saw my model and said, yeah, that's in so many words, like that could be the future of venture capital for, you know, enterprise tech startups like mine. And I see the long tail on, on that model. I'd love to, you know, to be involved somehow, so. Yeah, let's return. We've talked about TSG as the investment opportunity for getting skin in the game, your quest for innovation, the way you're managing the risk and the expectations. But let's return to the innovation. You know, we are in a truly extraordinary time. We see this unfolding before our eyes almost in real time. You know, thinking about where you're going to be going with your fund, with your partners, 
uh, with the companies you're working with, what's the exciting thing that you're looking at that's, that you think is going to be the thing that's going to, you're going to look back and say, that was the innovation point that made this, that made this, you know, the, the signature of this venture. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if I could pinpoint one specific thing, but I'll tell you that if I could just kind of raise the conversation up a little bit higher level, the thing that really, that excites me the most about, about this whole model, actually it's two things, allowing, providing access to uh, individuals in the industry who otherwise would have no possible way of getting access to really great deals, like alongside of these big VCs, um, giving them an opportunity to participate in that type of investing that is highly coveted and sought after, and essentially re rewarding them for playing a role in that company's success, that is very uh, fulfilling. Um, we, have, we have unusually low minimums for our investments for, for that reason, because not everybody can afford to put in fifty, hundred thousand dollars, whatever the number may be. Like, we have engineers and sales reps and engagement managers, individual key contributors that can make a difference in some way, shape, or form for these companies. And I'm just—I I don't want to say no to those folks. So that's that's one thing. At a higher level, I love the fact that this is truly not a zero-sum game. What we're doing, there, you know, it's not like the startups and the channel partners are winning massively, but the VCs are big losers in this, or the VCs and the channel partners are winning, but the startups are kind of losers. Like everybody wins when this model is applied correctly, everybody wins and everybody celebrates it. And that's a, that's a very good feeling. Yeah. That's, you know what, I, I'm truly looking forward to following your success and your evolution and your six in what I'm sure will be your success. And, uh, I, I really am. I'm hoping you're not going to be alone in this. I'm hoping that others will replicate you, not to give you competition, but to really shake things up a bit more. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, Chad, we're going to transition because, you know, this is, you know, what we call our final five. I want to ask you five questions. You haven't seen them. I just want to, you know, just get to know you a little bit better. Let everybody get a little bit in, into your skin, if you don't mind. Yeah. All sure. right. So, look, first question um, Can you prepare to be spontaneous? Yeah, I think you can. You know, my wife would agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to expand on that if, if you want, but short answer, yes. Yeah, no, please tell me, because my wife, she will, she, will, she will give me a three-ring binder of spontaneous things we'll do on vacation. Yeah, so I'll tell you, I'm in my relationship with my wife, I, at least historically, I wasn't the spontaneous one. Like she's the, I'm more conservative, like, hey, let's pull this out and let's plan that out. And like, you know, let's be a little cautious in terms of, you know, finances and all that stuff. My wife is complete opposite. She's the, you only live once, we're going for it, right? Yeah. And so we balance each other out. And so I have learned over time to be a little more spontaneous. And you can learn, I think anybody can learn by just consciously when presented with an opportunity to be spontaneous, you know, you just, you try harder each time. Yeah. Second question, you know, you've been on three sides of the channel. You've worked for a vendor in the channel organization. You've started a successful partner organization, and now you're specializing in investing. What do most people get wrong about the channel? 
Wow. People get a lot of things wrong about the channel. <laughs> I think the biggest thing is, um, I, I don't know what the right term for this is, but attribution error. Like the, people make assumptions or generalizations about the channel based on a spot, like one experience with a partner. Yeah. Or, or maybe here's another really common uh, example of that. You maybe you've never worked for a channel partner company, but you come up through a company like NetApp or EMC or whatever it may be. And that company has a particular philosophy or approach toward the channel. And then that's how you're raised. And that's yeah. how you're raised to, to view the channel and the value of the channel or lack thereof. And I think I've just seen, I've seen hundreds of people that have a view of the channel based on a past experience that is not accurate and not fair to apply to all, you know, channel partners. I, I know exactly what you speak of. Um, what, in your opinion, what is the most important position in a technology company? Oh my gosh. Um, I didn't, I forgot to tell you, we are keeping score. Yeah. All right. <laughs> how am I, how am I faring so far? Oh, you're two for two. Um, I think early on, I mean, most of the companies that, that we work with, they're, you know, they don't have built out, you know, organizations, they don't have a massive operations team and sales and marketing and everything. And so, I don't know, I think I'd have to say early on that, that founder CEO position, I, maybe that's, uh, I don't know. I, I think that's the, that's the most important for the companies that we work with because they're from day one, they are the ones setting vision, yeah. building initial relationships, making those first hires. And it's hard to think of anything more important. Yeah, the, the, the bedrock, the cornerstone of the foundation, right? Yeah. So look, you and I, I've referenced one, two books, you know, one that you and I both share, How to Castrate a Bull and also Skin the Game. But what do you consider? What is your, what is your must read book that you recommend everyone? Must read? Um, I'll give you two book, two, two examples. One I'm, I'm reading right now or listening to right now. It's um, by Stephen Pressfield. Are you familiar with? No. With um, very accomplished author. And I think he actually got to start in film, like writing screenplays and everything. But he's got a book. I don't know how recent it is. I think it just came out last year or two. And it's called Nobody Wants to Read Your Shit. <laughs> it's, I, have, I have heard of it. It's like, it's fascinating because I've always been interested in writing and the process of writing. I've never written a book or anything, but even a blog or typing a long email or something or a, a social media post on LinkedIn, whatever it may be, I've just always kind of enjoyed the process of writing. And so th this book, it's, I think it's like 250 or 275 chapters and each chapter on the audiobook is like, two or three minutes. And it's very direct, very to the point. And he talks about how all forms of writing and storytelling can and should, for the desired effect, make a certain shape and a, and a structure. Yeah. And that can be taught, whether you're writing a, you know, for the, the big screen or a novel or a blog post or whatever it may be. There's a recipe that you follow writer that can that can make you more successful and the basic premise is nobody gives a damn about what you 
what you're writing, what you're saying, unless you're sure that they do, right? Yeah. But if you operate from that, that starting point of nobody cares about what you think, what you're writing, everything, then it forces you to think, okay, well, how can I make sure that they do based on how I'm structuring what I'm writing? Yeah, I'll, I will share with you when I was a newspaper reporter back in the 90s, I used to say that, you know, as a professional journalist, I was trained to write on an eighth grade level. And yeah. occasionally I would hit that high. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so you should yeah. pick up this writer like you should. I think you would really enjoy it. Um, yeah. Actually, the, the what there's a version of that by Josh Burnoff, a former Forrester guy called Writing Without Bullshit, which is equally fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I think every executive needs to read that book. I think you'll, and if you're into the audiobooks, uh, the author narrates this one and he does a very good job of it. So he makes it fun. Oh, cool. uh, the other one, I, I wouldn't say this read for everybody, for anybody interested in this type of stuff. Um, there's a book called Man's Search for Himself. And it's written by Rolla May, a famous psychiatrist in the 60s or 70s, I think. And this is not to be confused with Man's Search for Meaning, which I think was Franco. Yeah. Man's search for himself is, is essentially just that. It's the, the individual's journey to figure out who they are as a person, why they are the way they are, why they have certain default behaviors and thoughts and everything. And uh, it's very, very, very kind of meaty and deep in terms of psychology and philosophy and everything. Um, I had to, it took me forever to get through that book. And I went back like two or three times and, and, and read it again, but I loved it because the basic premise I took from it is, uh, in my opinion, this world would be a better place if, if all of us as individuals knew ourselves better, then we'd be in a better position to, you know, treat other people better and have better relationships and all that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Last question, what, you know, given your investment adventure, what is the essential piece of information every company seeking investment should have at the ready? Every company seeking investment? <clears throat> yeah. So I'd like, I'll tell you, I, I remember talking with George Kurtz, um, founder, CEO and founder of CrowdStrike. I've known George for, yeah, I've, I've known George for a long time. I asked him, how did you get you know your initial 25 million? He goes, I put together a deck of 25 slides. They gave me 25 million. If yeah. I gave, if I did 30 slides, I probably would have gotten 30. So, yeah. but what is it that you want to see or that that people need to you know need to know about themselves or their business to be able to attract an investment? Yeah, I don't know. I may be on this answer, but I, instead of picking one thing. Uh, within like George's deck, by the way, amazing, amazing story, an amazing yeah. guy. Like, yes, we were so, been a partner of that company and then an investor. And it's just like, it's just an incredible, incredible story. Um, instead of picking like you, you use, you know, George's uh, deck as an example, instead of picking one thing in there that, that say you have to like, a guy like George presenting that deck to, you know, a set of investors, there can't be anything um, that you got to circle back on, you know, can't be anything unknown. There can't be any like, well, it might be this or it might be that, or we're still kind of figuring that out. Like everything's just got, the whole thing has to be tight. And you have to, if I were to nail, like pin it down to one thing, 
I would say just kind of confidence in the whole package and ability to address to address any question, any hole that somebody tries to poke in it, like without hesitation. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I think it's sound advice, sage advice for those who want to get funding. You know, I hear the phone ringing, which means it's a customer con. And that means we also have to go, you know, Chad, I could keep talking with you forever. This has been a great conversation. We're just going to have to have you come back another time and hear more about, uh, hear more about your adventures. Anytime. Thanks, Larry. I appreciate it. And thanks everyone for joining us again on Changing Channels. Until next time, I'm Larry Walsh and just good luck and keep selling. Thank you for joining Changing Channels with Larry Walsh, a production of Channelnomics. Our executive producer is Layla Kaiser with the support of our production team at Modern Podcasting. If you've enjoyed today's episode, hit the like button, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and share with your friends. For more information about Channelnomics services and insights, follow us on Twitter and YouTube, and check out our website at channelnomics.com. Channelnomics is a registered trademark of and Changing Channels is copyright by 2112 Enterprises, LLC.